This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Foreign policy just isn't that important to these Republicans. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the Editor's Roundtable. Today, I'm joined by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, a Georgetown University law professor who teaches international law, national security, and constitutional law. Also with me is another FP columnist, Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Finally, we have historian Robert Kagan, a best-selling author, columnist at the Washington Post, and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So let's start with a discussion about the state of the presidential campaign. In recent debates, we've heard a lot about uh, really vitally important issues like vaccines or the latest insult one candidate has for another. And every once in a while, something substantive like foreign policy creeps into this. But as I listen, for example, to recent Republican debates, I have to come to the conclusion that foreign policy just isn't that important to these Republicans. Um, Donald Trump is the leading candidate. Donald Trump has less foreign policy experience than Rose's new puppy. Um, Corey, you've been following this closely and uh, have worked in Republican administrations. Do you think that Donald Trump and Ben Carson are upholding the great tradition of Republican foreign policy? Obviously, the answer to that question is no. What I think is going on is that there's a strong consensus among Republican presidential hopefuls that people are, Americans are dissatisfied with President Obama's foreign policy. But I don't think anybody's actually turned the key in the lock yet that, that expresses what they're going to do differently that doesn't feel like an exhausting overcommitment to Americans but does have a credible basis for uh, changing things happening in the world and America's involvement in it. So it's just we're searching for the right balance from these people? Nobody. There's 17 Republican candidates at the moment. Other than Lindsey Graham, none of them have any foreign policy experience. Well, unless you count Marco Rubio being on Senate Foreign Relations, that's some reasonable experience. Well, wait a minute. What is, I'm sorry. What does foreign policy experience mean? I mean, we have very few people ever run for president who've served in the State Department. Um, Hillary Clinton, in fact, will be one of the few in recent times. I mean, we generally view senators who have played a major part in, in foreign policy as senators as, as being at least somewhat qualified. I don't, and I, I don't know the last time a think tank foreign policy expert was running for president. So, oh, God help us. I, I, mean, I would say that, you know, <laughs> 
uh, and some of our best foreign, foreign policy presidents, I would say Ronald Reagan, for instance, you know, he was governor of California. The, the, you know, it's unclear. But he obviously had given a lot of thought to foreign policy. And I think that's really the question is how much thought have people given to foreign policy so that when they get to the presidency, they're not starting from scratch. In which case, I would say several of the candidates have clearly uh, given a lot of thought to it and studied hard, and some of them uh, have not, and sort of almost almost proud of the fact that they have not, because it's part of their outsider image. Um, so, but you know, when you ask even about Donald Trump, and I, I want to just reinforce what Corey says, Donald Trump seems to have one message for his for the country is that we've been pushed around by all kinds of people. Now, unfortunately, he thinks that the people who push us around most are Mexicans. But um, we've been pushed around, and we've got to stop being pushed around. And when I'm president, we're not going to be pushed around. And there is – that's kind of a 1979, you know, echo. That was the feeling. The difference between Trump and Ronald Reagan, who ran on that echo, was Reagan said, I'm going to increase the defense budget. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And Trump said, just trust me. I'm going to take care of it. You know, well, I, that's a 1979 echo from a boy movie with Matt Dillon and some other guys beating up on the other bullies. I mean, the, 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 you know, that's the rough level of nuance with Trump. And what I'm getting at here is that, yes, five out of six of the last presidents didn't have a lot of foreign policy experience. But the Republicans have made a big thing recently of the fact that Barack Obama came in, four years of Senate experience, very limited exposure, and that's cost us. And the fact is, when you look at history, presidents who come in without a lot of hands-on exposure, either having been a vice president or having been involved in these issues a lot, have a long learning curve. All of them have. Ronald Reagan had a learning curve. Bill Clinton had a learning curve. George W. Bush had a learning curve. Barack Obama had a learning curve. Who didn't and have a learning curve? George H.W. Bush didn't have a learning curve. Richard Nixon didn't have a learning curve. Dwight Eisenhower didn't have a learning curve. But you curve. didn't get uniformly wonderful foreign policies no. out of those people. No, no. But, but, but you know, the, the, the reality is that there is a a material difference between people who know what they're doing and people who don't know what they're doing. And running the biggest, most complicated organization in the world and the biggest, most complicated military in the world actually involves knowing what tools you have and how do you get things done and who the other guys are and, you know, well, but David, Rosa. I, I think I think that Bob is right. Uh, we almost never get presidential candidates who come in with that experience. It's, it's rare. Uh, they tend to be people with domestic experience. Uh, they tend to be governors, et cetera. Um, and you know, you and I might wish that that were not so. We might wish that that they were former secretaries of state and former senators. But uh, I think the political reality in this country remains that most Americans are voting primarily on domestic issues with foreign policy. We, you know, can certainly tip the balance. It can be important and sometimes obviously very important. But most of the time, that's just not what's foremost on voters' minds. There's no particular incentive for the Republican or Democratic candidates to make that their central their central thing. You know, I, I also think there's a, there's a paradox here, and it's one that you've highlighted in your own written work in the past, David, which is that uh, everybody's in a little bit of a bind, both the Republican and the Democratic candidates, which is to say they all want to criticize Obama's foreign policy. Uh, and yet, in many ways, President Obama's foreign policy, much as we might all criticize it, is what the American people want. They're just embarrassed about the fact that they want it. You know, that Americans, poll after poll, seems to suggest that the the general sort of Obama philosophy of, hey, we can't control everything, we can't intervene everywhere, we, we only want to have limited types of interventions and engagements, we need to focus on things here at home, is something that Americans tend to agree with. 
They're a little embarrassed about that because it doesn't feel quite muscular and tough enough, and it feels like the kind of attitude people might have in a nation that gets pushed around. And yet they remember very clearly that it wasn't that much fun to be in the early in the early 2000s under you know Bush and Cheney, uh, where we were going around telling people not to push us around, and that didn't work out so well either. So there's a little bit of a dilemma, which is that people have completely contradictory attitudes towards foreign policy. They want to hear a muscular message, but they don't really want a particularly muscular foreign policy. So, Corey, the issue there then is not the lack of foreign policy experience or expertise of our candidates. It's the lack of expertise or vision of our voters. What do you think of that? Yeah, basically. But in defense of the American voter, you know, they don't spend most of their time thinking about America's role in the world. But when they hear what sounds like something that, you know, that is in line with a muscular American shaping of the international order, but that doesn't require us to solve every problem, that doesn't feel like it overcommits to outcomes it can't produce, then they support it. They just haven't heard it yet. I just think, you know, we have to have reasonable expectations in a campaign, especially an early part of the campaign when we're still weeding things out. I mean, as, as someone I'm sure we all have in one, all of us at, on this discussion have had some role in previous campaigns, there's nothing worse than being a foreign policy advisor to a presidential <laughs> campaign. Um, they're People, only interested... Nobody listens to you. No, they take your you memos say, and they throw them out. <laughs> no, you always say, we have to give a very serious speech where we explain to the American people exactly what our view is and how we look at the world, and that just never happens. It's always drive-by shooting. If it's Iran this week or it's ISIS next week, I wouldn't make too much of this. And as you as you go forward, you basically, the American people come to an election with a general view of whether foreign policy is in good shape or in bad shape. They have a general sense that they'd like America to be more involved or less involved, stronger or not, they don't care. Um, and then they look at the temperament of candidates and see, does this seem like a person who can get us there? And that's, that's really all foreign policy ever is uh, in a campaign. And we shouldn't get too in the weeds in the nonsense uh, that most political campaigns are at this I, stage. I love, I love the idea that there's nothing worse than being a foreign policy advisor in a presidential campaign. It just called to mind an image of a Syrian refugee walking from Syria to Hungary going, well, at least I'm not a foreign policy advisor to a presidential campaign. <laughs> You're right. There are some things that are worse. <laughs> there are quite a few things that are worse. Um, but it's certainly an exercise in frustration. I mean, I, I think I think that's exactly right, that, that, that us wonky types are always getting excited about the, you know, very detailed speech on drones or whatever it may be, or an ISIS that, that our favorite presidential candidate of the moment ought to give. And uh, they always make vague promises. Yeah, I think I'll one of these days a foreign policy speech, but then in fact it keeps getting pushed off, and you end up getting two sentences in a speech on something else, right. um, which which very much underlines, I think, what Bob is saying. But I think you get a sense of where the candidates think the mood of the country is. That's that's to me that's the more interesting question because the mood of the country is important, um, and the candidates respond to what they think the mood is. Now, Republicans clearly think that Republican voters are in a somewhat hawkish... I think that Rose is exactly right. They want to be cheap hawks. They want to be hawks without having to use force. But nevertheless, they're in that kind of... We're being pushed around. The other person who seems to agree with this, interestingly, is Hillary Clinton, uh, who gave a foreign policy speech, which was definitely hawkish. Um, in fact, somebody accused her of being a neocon or it being a neocon-type speech in which she talked explicitly about using force 
in Iran. She's obviously not doing this to run against Bernie Sanders, um, who I assume does not take that position. She's already thinking about the general with a speech like that. Um, so I think that that's an interesting uh, barometer of where she well, thinks the public is. Well, that's that's a reference to Hillary Clinton's speech that she gave at Brookings on the Iran deal. And in the course of that speech, uh, she said a number of things which uh, many people have said to me are the things that President Obama ought to say about having a broader regional strategy in the region, about how tough you need to be with Iran in order to make the deal work, and so forth. And so in, in some respects, you know, she was speaking to the potential Republican candidates. But I, I think another interesting resonance of the speech was that she was sending a message to her former boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, that may not have been her intent, but it certainly came out in contrast to what he has said. You, you know, I... I I think that's right. Uh, I also think that if we're trying to, 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 to whatever degree we have any ability whatsoever to predict the likely foreign policies of each of the candidates, um, which is minimal, frankly, uh, I think that we would do better to look not to what they're saying, which is also minimal uh, and is often garbage and meant for meant for media consumption or particular constituencies, but rather look to the people they're surrounding themselves uh, with as advisors and uh, you know, I remember early in the Obama administration, uh, many of Obama's supporters uh, who were more on the on the left uh, were totally baffled when he came into office and he started making these rather conservative, little c conservative uh, appointments and nominations in in the foreign policy realm. You know, people who to be to be to be harsh looked to that critical community like you know retreads from the Clinton administration and so forth, and certainly were not the exciting new progressive voices that that community had been hoping for. And there was this period in which everybody said, oh, this is so baffling. President Obama himself has this set of policy commitments, and yet mysteriously he's appointing this other set of people who don't share those commitments. What a mismatch. They won't serve him well. And yet at the end of the day, you know, personnel is policy. The people you appoint, that's the policies you're going to get because they're the people, you know, day to day who are going to be making decisions and advising you. And I and I think the same is going to hold true for everybody here. You know, you want to know what they're going to do? Look who they're surrounded by. Look who, who look who they're likely to be appointing both on the campaign trail and, and once they get into office, if they get into well, office. You and, know, that's a good point. You know, Corey, you know all these people. You've worked among these people. There was a moment in the recent Republican uh, debate where Jeb Bush made the point that Essentially, all the foreign policy advisors either worked for George W. Bush or they worked for George H. W. Bush because those were the last two Republican administrations and that's where the professionals were. Um, Sometimes the foreign policy community seems to me like, well, a little inbred. I once made the mistake on C-SPAN of suggesting it was as inbred as a West Virginia mountain town. And then you're, you're toast in West Virginia. And I was, I'm toast. I got a lot of phone calls. Like, what are you saying about my family? But um, and now, and now I've just done it again. Yeah, but really. I don't. I, I'm not even it, sure that's a West Virginia accent. But well, thank you, thank you. But by, by way of New Jersey, but are, you know, is there a range of views in the Republican foreign policy community, Corey? I mean, you know, you have. Essentially, the, the the last two Bush administrations, and then apparently, you know, Harvey, the invisible white rabbit, who is advising Donald <laughs> Trump, you know, the, who's going to be excellent. Okay, but, so David, your nasty swipe at the voters in West Virginia is more than countered by the Harvey the White Rabbit reference. Um, <laughs> so, so it's a, a net gain in your column. Um, 
Okay, good. So I don't think the discussion about advisors was Bush's best moment last night. To me, it sounded terribly country club. You know, of course my advisors are connected to the last two Republican administrations. Because I'm part of a political dynasty. (laughs) Yeah. um, But I do think there, and I think the, the discussion last night in the debate actually shows that we are having a foreign policy discussion in Republican ranks. In fact, I think we're having two big national security discussions in Republican ranks. The first is... Uh, whether we need to change the world in order to be safe, right? So how much do we need to engage in the world? How much do we need to change in the world? What are the means we need to do it? And the second is the legacy, whether there is such a thing as big government conservatism. Um, and, and whether that means everybody's going to be in favor of higher defense spending, that a militarization of American foreign policy is something we're going to be comfortable with, uh, I I think it's a pretty there's a pretty broad spectrum in the conversation right now because people don't agree. Bob, Bob Bob is shaking his head. I don't agree that people don't agree. So I guess that proves your point. But um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think there's a there was a time when Rand Paul was riding high in the polls and wasn't hovering around a half a percent, which is where he is right now. Um, uh, there was a time when it looked like there was a split in the Republican Party. And I do think that in terms of Republican voters, um, uh, there is still a Rand Paul constituency without a Rand, without any enthusiasm for Rand Paul. But I felt bad for Rand Paul watching that debate. Well, I'm I mean, gonna, he, was, he was like a poor nebbishy guy. It's like, see, remember me? I used to be hot. Well, now. He used that to was be the hot. moment but, when Trump was talking about his opposition <laughs> to the Iraq War. Yeah. Well, you anyway, uh, you guys just can't stop talking about this political ephemera. But if uh, getting okay. back to the foreign policy question, not yeah, only thank but, you, that's why, that's but, why uh, you're here. But you know, if you look at all the foreign policy advisors to all the plausible campaigns, they're all basically from the. the Everybody who got asked by Bush right away went over to Bush, and everybody who was left went to other candidates. You know, they went to Scott Walker, or they went to this. So I wouldn't make too much of it. And I think that, you know, now that the Rand Paul phenomenon in foreign policy is down, there is a general, I would say, consensus among Republican foreign policy types that we need to be more engaged. We need a bigger defense budget. We need, and by the way, there are many Democrats who feel exactly the same way. And so way. that's how John Bolton ended up with Donald Trump? It's no, like, he's not with Donald. Donald Trump said John Bolton. John Bolton. Uh, John Bolton's spokesman said John Bolton talks to everybody, which is true. I don't, John Bolton has a spokesman. I thought he just had a Thorazine. Well, sources close to John Bolton. Anyway, but um, <laughs> but clearly, I mean, this is going to shake out in, yeah. the, in the next year. Obviously, in, in terms of who's advising whom and who is who is really an advisor who people actually listen to versus right. who is just on the long list of people who can claim that but they're helping not, the campaign. And there is a clear, you know, there is a difference between John Bolton and, for instance, Corey. Shockey, right? There's a big difference. And if I find a can, if there's a Republican candidate who says I'm listening to Corey, and another one who says I'm listening to John, uh, we can we can assume that they're going to end up with pretty different foreign I, policies. I guarantee you, the next Republican president is going to say, I mean, the candidate is going to say, I'm listening to both Corey and John because that's kind of the way they do things. Now, by the way, let me just say a word, if I could, you know, about the about the the 2008 shakeout on the Obama side. Look, everybody thought Clinton was going to win. All the Clintonites lined up with Clinton. And the people who didn't think they were going to be at the top of the Clinton list said, well, what the heck? I'll take a, I'll take a bet. I'll bet on a stock that may be rising, and I'll go over to Obama. There wasn't a dime spit of difference between most of the people who were advising Obama and their fellow Clintonites who were advising Clinton. And 
Um, oh, I, I, as there was only, there's only I, th I think that's a trifle unfair. Well, we're not going to start naming names here, but I mean, I think that to, to me it was a question what? of <laughs> we're you not. Mean we. <laughs> we're not. Okay, you, you can name names. I'm, I don't name names. They're all they're all of our they're all our buddies, and I don't want to. Uh, well, that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, right. That, that's all the all the listeners out there going. They're all their buddies. Yeah, that's right. They're 35 people in foreign policy land to right. begin with. Well, that's all there are. We're not pretending to be the outsiders here. Are Right. No, no, that's right. And they know that we, you know, all these people could fit in this tiny studio high above DuPont Circle right That's right. Now. The entire foreign policy establishment. <laughs> that's right. a particularly disgusting thought. You know? <laughs> really wouldn't Absolutely. be enough air. <laughs> yeah, Cor there'd be too much hot air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, there would be. But, um, it, it, you know, as, as, as you look at that kind of shakeout from the past, what can we expect? Let's let's look ahead. Let's try to imagine substantively for a second, because I think one of you said something about how it's impossible to predict what the issues will be. And yet, somehow, in my mind, I think it's possible to predict what the issues will be. I believe that on the Republican side, we will say the following: that, and I don't, and by we, I mean they. Um, but we'll say the following, and 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 that'll be something like we need a strong military. Obama was going to eviscerate it. We need to spend more. We need to modernize the military. And we, on the Democratic side, they're going to say exactly the same thing. Exactly. Yes. Well, I was going to get to that. Right. But now you've spoiled sorry. the whole oh, punchline oh, no. of this, right? Sorry. You know. So sorry. And and Hillary Clinton is going to run, and she's you know, and the Republicans are going to run, and they're going to say we need to be stronger against bad guys like Putin, and we need to be tough against China and the South. China. China Sea, and we need to be tough on Iran, and we need to be loyal to our good friends in Israel, and you know, Ann Coulter notwithstanding, and we need to, you know, and and then Hillary Clinton's going to go and say the exact same thing, and we're going to go and get to a campaign, and you're going to need, you know, a, a room full of Talmudic scholars to determine the difference between either side in this. Does that seem reasonable to you, Corey? Well, if Clinton is the nominee, I certainly think that. That will be the case, um, but if? I think that how we get there will be very different. Because my guess is that you know sooner or later somebody's going to say, "And how are we going to pay for this military that you want?" And a Democratic and a Republican nominee will give a very different answer to that. Do you, did, Bob, do you think I, they'll give a different answer? I don't know that any one of them will give any answer because any answer they give is going to be problematic. I mean, everyone knows that you're not going to be able to increase defense spending unless, A, you cut from something else, which no one is going to want to do, or, B, you basically make the deal that Ronald Reagan made when he increased the defense budget, which is he gave at least dollar-for-dollar dollar increases in domestic spending to go along so that the Democrats would support increases in defense budget. That's the deal that's out there that nobody wants to talk about. I don't know any other way you're going to get there. Okay, well, let me ask you a question on this. And again, it's just us chickens sitting here, so we could be honest, okay? The United States spends more money on defense than the next, what, 12, 15 countries added up. We have the biggest military in the world by far. Uh, we're the only country in the world that has the ability to project force in space, in the air, on land, on the sea, anywhere we want, anytime we want to do it. We're a little weaker than we were. But the reality is um, both sides, there's a kind of a consensus about all but 5% of the spending. I mean, no, nobody is saying cut it dramatically. Um, everybody has bought into the notion that the U.S. needs to outspend everybody in the world added up. Forever. 
well, you make this, you know, this is the most cartoonish discussion of defense spending I've ever heard. I mean, although it's a common statement, but look, I mean, the United States, first of all, performs a role that's entirely different than the next 11 countries. Uh, we have become, since World War II, the basic balance of security in Asia, in Europe, and until recently, the Middle East. If you don't want to do that, tell me which one of those things you don't want to do anymore. Where do you not want to have that security? And the bottom line is, and this is something that has been said not by Republicans, but by Bob Gates, by Ash Carter, by every Secretary of Defense, by people who will be working for Hillary Clinton if she wins, we have gotten to the point where our military will be unable to do any of the things that we want them to be able to do if any of these crises that you talk about all the time occur. If there's a crisis in the South China Sea, if we need to do something in the Middle East that we can't even anticipate, we won't have the ability to do it. That's what's at stake. And we're about to go into a probably continuing resolution for a year, which is going to take defense spending below even the sequester numbers, because the sequester numbers allow an increase in defense spending and the CR will keep it flat. And everyone who pays even the smallest attention to American obligations and security needs knows that we are heading in a very dangerous direction. But, but you know, this is, a, I mean, let's stipulate that I was being a little cartoonish yep. there to be provocative. Partially I'm cartoonish because I'm actually a cartoon character. You can't see that. But the 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 discussion that you just had there was not actually about a political debate. It was about how the process was cutting down on the resources available to the system. And that it, it is to, – to me, it's inconceivable that Hillary Clinton or Marco Rubio or John Kasich or Jeb Bush or whomever the candidate is when, that we ultimately get to on the other side are actually going to have – much difference in their opinion about where the the future of the U.S. military is going to be. They're Both all going to agree that it should be increased. They should all going right. to be. It yeah. should be increased, and everybody is going to you know. And they'll have a hard time. You know, where's the money going to come from? And there's going to be a little bit of a debate. But you know, I don't think anybody in the outside world listening to this, looking at the United States, should think that either candidate from either party is going to radically change America's posture yeah. on this. And and in fact, and this is just the, my, my final point of this, my, my, if you're outside the U.S. listening to this discussion, my guess is that the Hillary Clinton as president or whomever the Republican is as president is going to, um, if anything, be a little bit of a throwback, a little bit look a little bit more like traditional American stance, a little bit less like Obama, but more like George W. Bush or or and I'm not talking about Iraq. I'm just talking about the stance. More like Bill Clinton, uh, more like George H. W. Bush, um, and that and that they're going to say, well, gee, this is pretty traditional U.S. foreign policy. I, I think that historically there has always been more continuity than change between parties and when it comes to foreign policy. Um, and the, the rare exceptions are when there's some big external shock that kind of shakes things up. 9-11 was one of those big external shocks that, that shook things up, in, external, internal, obviously, uh, as well. But, um, you know, I think that part I, – I think that there are, again, and I, I'm going to harp on my theme of – don't listen to what they say. Look at look at what their wonkiest advisors, who they actually pay attention to, are saying. You know, there are significant differences in terms of how different people see what we should be spending defense dollars on and what types of threats we should be preparing to respond to. There, there's a big how in there, not just a dollar sign. 
Uh, and I don't actually think that that really tracks partisan politics particularly. You know, it sort of tracks some philosophical approaches to what are the threats out there, what are the opportunities, what, what, what capacities do we have, do our allies and our, our adversaries have. Um, but I think that there certainly are people, both Republicans and Democrats, sitting around in think tanks and universities and other places who are trying to draw up blueprints for some pretty radical overhauls of U the U.S. military and how the U.S. exercises military power. That won't make a single bit of difference because given, given the politics in Congress, given everything else, uh, barring some kind of big shock, whoever becomes president from whichever party is going to have a remarkably hard time doing anything other than sort of twiddling away with stuff on the margins. And I think that's what president after president has found, you know, that unless you have something on the level of 9-11 that really briefly creates a window in which people are willing to say, whoa, start over, for better or for worse, you know, you can, you can tinker on the margins and that's pretty much all you can do. So I, you know, I think that's what's likely to continue to happen. We're going to tinker on the margins. It's it's not going to be particularly good. Uh, we're going to continue to have a growing sense that we have this giant military that we spend a huge amount of money on that is not able to solve many of the problems that we want to solve in the world for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you want to talk about this, David, but but I'm sure we were, we were all struck by the testimony of uh, uh, the commanding general of U.S. Central Command, who said that despite our much publicized, much vaunted effort, for instance, to spend hundreds of millions of dollars uh, training uh, Syrian fighters to fight against ISIL and so forth, we apparently are down to perhaps four or five uh, fighters who are actively in the field. Um, that, you know, there's a really interesting question. We've got the world's strongest military. We can toss money around like no other nation can do, and, and yet and yet it's taken us five five or six months to get these five guys out there. You know, the, so that, that raises all these big these questions which nobody's going to want to grapple with. extremely well-trained, very backed guys. <laughs> We're like spending $100 million a person on these guys. These are super soldiers. And if I were ISIS, I would be quaking in my boots. The <laughs> fact that there are fewer of them than there were kids in the Brady Bunch should not be misunderstood. Right, Bob? Right. But, and, and, but I think the bottom line is if we're talking about the campaign to come, I think it is very likely that the international situation uh, and the consensus view of the international situation in the United States is that it's getting – it's going to be worse and worse and worse. Obama shows no inclination to do what many presidents have done in the past, which is have a kind of late – a late moment of realization. Remember Jimmy Carter, after the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, said, I've learned more about the Soviet Union in the last, et cetera, et cetera, and tur turned on a dime, increased the defense budget, got much more hawkish. Uh, you could say every – Bill Clinton, you know, had a moment when he decided that he really had to be more involved in the world. I think Obama is dead set against making that turn, which means – um, it's it, we're going to see more and more of you know Russian advances, China pushing, uh, uh, and other things that we can't even anticipate. So, it will be very plausible. And I think this is going to be partly a foreign policy election, uh, more than more than some are, uh, because there's going to be a case to be made. Now, the question, of course, as we've already said, is. Are the candidate, are the Democratic candidate and the Republican candidate going to disagree about that? Or are they both going to agree that there is a big problem? Now, that has to do with who the Democrat is. I think if it's Hillary, I think that's almost certainly true. If it's Joe Biden, I'm not so sure. Joe Biden Come on, is, it's, let's, you know. Let's be serious. It's not going to be Joe Biden. Okay, fine. It is going to be Hillary Clinton. Okay, fine. Joe Biden's not really going to. I was talking to somebody who's super close to Joe Biden. He doesn't think he has the fire in his belly. He also <laughs> runs the risk of 
you know, right now he's beloved Uncle Joe, the beloved vice president of the United States. He runs, he loses, he's he's an also ran, he's a guy who just kept wanting this job that he could never have. It's 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 so then it's, it's a, a question of who's on the Republican side, and then you know I think if it's Rubio, if it's Jeb Bush, if it's John Kasich, and probably even if it's Donald Trump in his own you know ridiculous kind of way, he's they're all going to be saying the same thing about Obama's foreign policy. Which by the way will be interesting for Obama uh, well, uh, as uh, as he as he leaves office under with a campaign that's dedicated to talking about what a disaster the situation okay. is. Okay, well let's also be clear: it's not going to be Donald Trump. Okay, Donald Trump is a gigantic joke. And if you think that this is pro, pro... Look, I'm an accidental journalist. I don't even know how I ended up doing this. I've and tried, he's going to be an accidental president? No, no, he's not going to be an accidental president because... <laughs> and one this day is, we're all going to wake up and go, holy shit, This is a guy. Do? This is a guy who made all his money in beauty pageants and casinos. Hey, Arnold Schwarzenegger was if, governor of California. Jesse oh, Ventura was governor of Minnesota. Don't count Donald Trump out. I, okay. wish, like, I wish we could, but don't. Well, I, I do. Um, because I think the stories about making money in casinos are ugly. Um, uh, I think the beauty pageant business not, you know, going to produce a lot of good stories. But anyway, so Corey, you're, you know, you've worked with Republican campaigns. You, you've been in the midst of this. You know, historically, Republican campaigns have run in the past on this unique selling proposition. We are better at national security than Democrats. We are better at doing this kind of thing. Post-George W. Bush, for better or for worse, it's kind of hard to run on that. What's the unique selling proposition of the Republican Party, regardless of candidate right now? Yeah, so I agree with you that it's a harder sell uh, now than it was. What is surprising, though, is that Obama foreign policy is making everyone converge we know what we don't like. We haven't yet gotten to the point of consensus on this is what we want. I was struck by two things listening to the debate last night. The first was that you actually wouldn't know America already had the world's best military listening to Republicans talk last night. Um, and the second thing was there was a great timidity about embracing American values and a sense of America um, using those values as the touchstone for our engagement in the world. The word human rights was mentioned once last night, and it was by Kasich in his closing statement. Rubio talked about the need to promote democracy. Nobody else did. It was really surprising to me how little ownership people took of the kinds of issues that actually that have animated Republican sense of the United States as a force for good in the world. There was a lot of tough talk. There wasn't a lot of values-based talk. Well, again, they're responding to what they think the American people want to hear. Democracy promotion, quote-unquote, has gotten a bad name after Iraq and Afghanistan. And they know that what American, you know, they everybody, if you talk to any Republican who's been out there on the, on the hustings, they will say the beheadings changed everything. The ISIS beheadings of Americans changed the polls, and it's all about fear. It's not about what good things we want to do in the world. And we're running right now a fear campaign, not a America has a great role to play in the world campaign. And that's what they think, that's what they think the voters want to hear. Yeah, I, you know, I think at the end of the day, presidential campaigns come down to a couple of things. But at the core, they come down to how do presidential candidates make voters feel about themselves? 
Do they make them feel good about themselves? Do they make them feel good about the country? That's why optimistic candidates tend right. to do better than pessimistic right. candidates. And I think on the foreign policy front, the place that you want to end up is, I'm going to make America great. I'm going to make America strong. I'm going to make America a country you can be proud of. I am going to make America a leader. And and that those things seem to be in question right now. And I think there's going to be a convergence around those But ideas. I do think that because of what you and Corey were talking about before, a Republican candidate has to do something else as well. I think they have to say they implicitly, I know that you think the last Republican president was too fast on the trigger. I'm not going to be too fast on the trigger. I think Scott Walker made a, a very big mistake by saying, I'm going to rip up the deal on day one. I may go to war on day one. I won't even have a secretary of defense, but I may have to go to war on day one. It struck me that another candidate should have said, I'm going to tell the American people something right now. This is my promise. I am not going to war on day one. Because I think the American people want to be strong. Three, but we, it's good to give it a little time. We're going to yeah. give it a little time, get our people in place before I, maybe I can even find out what's going on. But um, Yeah, but I mean, but, Scott Walker, you know, and he said, yeah. I, he reminded me of a Republican uh, senior advisor that I was talking to the other day who said, you know, Scott Walker's not the guy you would have studied off of in your high school physics class. <laughs> I mean, th th that, you know. But, uh, but that, the bottom line is I do think that um, Republicans need to give a sense that we're going to be strong, we're going to deal with our enemies, but we're also going to be deliberate uh, and make uh, careful decisions because I think the American people need to hear that. Um, and if And if I were... You know, if I were a Democrat of any kind running against the Republicans, I would say you're trigger happy. I think the American people don't want trigger happy. They want strength. I think it's the paradox that Rosa talks about. They want to be tough without having to do anything that's really tough. Well, so you've got to somehow play into that, that's right? A, that's, well, but that's a very interesting point. And I, we, I, I'd like to wrap this conversation up in five minutes, despite all the pleas from listeners to our earlier podcast that we just go on and on and on. People just love to listen to talk and talk really, and talk and talk. They great. do. I think it's because they have very long commutes or something my, like that. You know, I told my kids that. They didn't They didn't. They didn't yeah. Believe that, but let me let's spend the last five minutes or or so talking about the Democratic candidate and what the Democratic candidate has to do. Um, we have the interesting prospect that the Democratic candidate is likely to be a former Secretary of State, something that has not happened in the United States uh, successfully since James Buchanan, the last Secretary of State to become president, uh, who ended up, unfortunately, for Hillary Clinton's president precedents, being possibly the worst president in American history. There's a, lot, um, there's a lot of competition for that. The, well, yeah, but he's he was he's 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 right up there. But Hillary Clinton has a problem in the context of what Bob was just saying, um, which is you might want to say let's not just go to war. You and she does emphasize diplomacy a little bit more, but she has to differentiate herself from Barack Obama and the perceived fecklessness of Barack Obama. If you are advising Hillary Clinton, Rosa. Um, what would you say her positioning needs to be? I think her positioning needs to be and, and has sort of been but could could solidify a little bit more in this direction uh, a, a little bit of if you're going to do it, do it. If you don't want to do it, don't do it and explain why. And if you're going to do it, really do it. Because I think that's the biggest criticism that many Democrats, uh, as well as Republicans, obviously have of President Obama's foreign policy. It's been that it has been... Uh, uh, 
no half assed. Yeah, it's been half assed. It's it's yeah. it's it's neither been consistently, hey, let's get out there and try to reshape the world to make it the way we want, which has dangers, huge dangers, nor has it been no, um, we're busy, we're poor, we got stuff to do here at home, we are not going to get sucked in. Uh, yes, ISIS may behead a few people, but that's a few people. It's not an existential threat to the United States, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to focus on shoring up our longer-term defenses and shoring up our own nation. It's neither one nor the other. It's sort of a little bit of each, and it feels a bit like flailing back and forth, uh, depending on the political winds of the day. And, and I think that for Hillary Clinton, sort of saying, hey, I'm going to be cautious. I'm not going to be trigger-happy. Absolutely not. But if we make a considered decision, for instance, that ISIS is a serious threat, then we're not going to put artificial limitations on what we're going to do. We're going to do whatever we have to do. We're going to keep at it. We're not going to get bored halfway through and decide we're not that interested anymore. You know, you can rely on me to make thoughtful, careful, cautious decisions, but to see those decisions through. And that that's, I think, what she's implying, but she hasn't yet really, partly because she's, you know, she doesn't want to offend uh, the sitting Democratic president for obvious reasons right now. But, but as we get closer to the election, I think we're going to see that coming more sharply into focus. Corey? Boy, I think that's going to be a very hard act to pull off, um, especially since she is widely known to have been a major force in the Obama administration's decision to intervene in Libya. Um, you know, she she didn't object to the withdrawal from Iraq. It, does anyone think Obama administration's Afghanistan war has been consistent with that narrative? I just think she's going to have a much harder time putting any distance between herself and them. And I agree with Rosa, that's the narrative she would like to put in place, but I think it's going to be very hard to do with her record. Well, the problem is her record <laughs> Her record is a, is a victim of Obama's decisions. I mean, I think we know that, A, uh, she was not in favor of pulling out of Iraq. B, she was not in favor of the decision that he made on Afghanistan to put a date certain on the departure that she wanted to do more in Syria. The problem is she lost all those arguments. She didn't fight, I would say, as hard as she might have. But he was clearly not interested in doing that. So she can't run on what she wanted to do, unfortunately. I, I'm not so sure. Maybe she thinks she can do that? I think she'll have to, to some extent. because And, and I think I think luckily for her, there are you know independent witnesses who are going to say, yes, she fought for this. I mean, she is... They, they've already said it. And they've Panetta, already said it. They've, that's Panetta has said right. it, and Bob Gates, Gates has said, has said it, it and, and, and other people and, have said and, it. And, and I think that... I think think that Americans get the concept of you work for the president when the president says, I heard you, no, you shut up, unless it's so important you're going to resign. Yeah. So, but, but I think she's going to have, it's going to, it's going to be tricky, absolutely, but she's going to have to be, you know, without coming down too hard on Obama, she's going to have to be saying, you know, look, uh, I have a lot of loyalty to this guy. I disagreed with him on many central issues, you know, and he was the president. I was not. He won. I lost. But now it's my turn. We'll Here's how I'm going to see whether they it. can pull that off because that's tough. Now, what we haven't mentioned is the word that is going to be coming out of Republican candidates' mouth every time she says foreign policy, which is Benghazi. Um, oh, come on. No, no, oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. If you think that is not true, that they're going to say that. Well, what is it? It's just nonsense that was made up by somebody that nobody, you know, they've been spending money examining this thing for, for years. There's nothing there. It's a complete made up. Okay, political well, uh, cudgel. Thank you, Hillary Clinton spokesman. But the but the bottom well, line what's is the substance. The the bottom line is she doesn't have a an answer that puts it to bed because it was an ugly affair. 
whether she had any whether she was responsible for it or not, and I don't think she was responsible for it. It was an ugly affair for which there is no good answer. Bad decisions were made, okay? And there is no way to say that bad decisions weren't made, and she was Secretary of State at the time. Now, you may not want to hear it, but I think Republican, a Republican candidate is going to hammer on that every time she says, I'm tough and you can trust me. Why wouldn't they? Well, no, no. They may try to do it, but I just think Maybe the American it doesn't work. People, Maybe it, it doesn't work. No, no. It's just yeah. become a bit It'll of— It'll work like, for their base. Actually, and I mean, I should, yeah. I should even—I mean, it, let's, let's be even more, uh, you know, go further down this thing. They're going to say email server, email server, yeah. email server. Right. But these are all issues that I think fall into the category of things where the people who are already against her are going to say, yes, yeah. this is important. Yeah. The people are ready for are going to say it's not important, and they're not going to move the needle one inch in either direction. The needle is, I'm sorry, I believe me, I'm not I personally think that this is a big deal. However, the facts are the needle is moving now. She is bleeding support in the polls, including among yeah. oh, Democratic women, and among the issues that is hurting her right now among Democrats, who she's losing to Bernie Sanders and, and a theoretical Joe Biden, is on the email server. Well, I think that the biggest problem that Hillary Clinton has, and it's a problem she's had for years, she had it last time around too, uh, and, and it's proven remarkably hard for her to overcome, uh, is that people sort of don't trust her. You know, that they think there's something shady somewhere about almost everything. And she has not helped herself. She's not done herself any favors. I mean, I mean, on on issue after issue, including the email issue, she should have said months and months ago, I really screwed up. I blew it. That was really stupid of me. I'm not going to do it again. And I, and I think the way she recovers from think even the Benghazis, you know, if she if she had a different personality, if she were a different person, you know, she, she should be getting out there saying, you know what? Yes, we made mistakes. Do you want somebody who made mistakes and learned from them? Or do you want somebody who has no experience and is arrogantly thinks they can do whatever they want? Well, I, you know, you know, I think and that, she, she, she's not good at saying that kind of thing. No, no. And she, that's right. And I, look, first of all, you know, she. You, you may feel bad for the foreign policy advisor as a president. Sometimes I feel bad for the candidates. You know, she's sitting there and she's got a group of people who are saying, just do what Obama did. And then she's got Bill Clinton and a bunch of other people saying, just do it the way we used to do it in the Bill Clinton era. She's not Bill Clinton. She's not Barack Obama. She's good in certain kinds of settings. She's got a huge amount of uh, uh uh, expertise in certain kinds of areas. She's a very compelling figure in a certain context. And ultimately, she'll succeed if her own voice comes out yeah. and her own yeah. message comes out. And she won't if she listens to these other characters. Why doesn't she listen to us, David? That's what I would well, like to I, know. Well, she Damn will it. listen to everybody. everybody <laughs> I hope will she's listening to, to this the, podcast. To this Hillary, podcast. are you listening to our podcast? You should be. Uh, um, Corey, we're going we're gonna to wrap up this particular podcast right here. Um if next year is a foreign policy election, as Bob said it's going to be, in 30 seconds or less, what's the big foreign policy issue that's going to turn the election? Oh, wow. Uh, somebody coming up with a better alternative to policy on Iran, I think. I think Iran is likely to take center stage because all the Republican candidates uh, dislike the deal, but I haven't heard as Bush said last night, tearing up the agreement isn't a strategy. So I, I do think we ought to be tested on whether our, our muscles for making strategy have atrophied. Decisive issue in the in next year. Well, it's not going to be whether. I mean, in, uh, I 
I don't agree with Corey that it's going to be whether anybody has an answer. Nobody ever asks for an answer. It's what can you complain about? And I just think that without it, you don't have to pick up a specific issue. As in 1979, 1980, it was Afghanistan, it was the Iran hostage crisis, it was the general perception that developed that the United States was getting into deeper and deeper trouble and the other, the bad guys were advancing. That is what's going to seem, that's what it's going to seem like uh, during the, during 2016. Rosa. Agree with Bob. I agree with Bob, too, and that's a very rare occasion here that we're all sort of aligned, (laughs) but I think it is 1979. I think the person who best conveys Ronald Reagan's It's Morning in America and gives people hope for a kind of renewed spirit of American leadership that they think is consistent with America's role in the world and their own vision of what the country should be is going to win. In any event, thank you all for joining me for this um, edition of the podcast, and we will be back with you soon with another one. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.